So um, we're here. I'm with my friend and brother, Paul King, from Middlesbrough. And uh, we've known each other for a few years. Worked together. Paul's been down to Somerset to see us and meet the people that we're working with here. And God's doing some really amazing things in Middlesbrough through Paul and Stella. And thought it'd be good to share that with people to encourage them. So, all right, Paul? Yeah, good, yeah. Um, so maybe what I thought we could start with is, Paul, why don't you just share, how did you um, come to be a follower of Jesus in the first place? Do you want to tell us a bit of your yeah. story? Yeah, I, um, I I basically came to Christ in prison. And um, I got there via a lot of bad choices. And then, um, you know, my life was kind of, one bad choice really. My my mum made a choice um to take drugs. That choice cost her a life, cost her a kind of lifestyle, everything else. She ended up addicted to heroin and crack cocaine. And so I grew up really with her dealing drugs and selling drugs. And then when I was a young lad, she was sent to prison. And so at that point in my life, I was sent to live with an auntie and an uncle and different part of the country really when i lived there it was like experiencing culture for the first time and i learned how to use a knife and fork properly i learned different things like you know if you're in a restaurant you don't just chew food up and spit it across the table you, you know you kind of have manners and you swallow it and you don't eat anymore so all these little things i learned and at that point in my life i was kind of smoking drinking i was you know into looking at booze and all that kind of stuff and I was like 10 years of age I think and then I'd been doing a lot of burglaries and robberies and stuff like that and and so I was quite uh wild and common and then being in this kind of middle class environment it forced me to change and to adapt really to fully fit in and and you know a crazy thing was whilst it was like the worst time of my life actually being in this environment where I was loved by somebody where there was routine, where people invested time in me, it started kind of bringing healing to my life. And I um, I started getting a bit of vision for my life. I started getting ideas and plans and things I might want to do in my future. And then my mum got out of prison. And then she got out of prison. I went back home to my estate. And obviously, you know, the estate hadn't changed. It was still the estate, still rife with drugs and crime and all that other stuff. And and so I had to adapt back to that person again, back to the person I was. And so, you know, obviously all the other things come back in, the drinking, the drugs, the, the other stuff, the, the crime. And um, and yeah, and so because of my lifestyle, because of the way my mum was living and everything else, um, I was going to school, causing trouble in school. Um, and in the end, I just got expelled from school and kicked out. And um, And really my life was, pretty rubbish and um, I was walking about thinking for the first time I'm free I don't have to go to school I can smoke cannabis do what I want but after about two or three months of doing nothing 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 about with people who were like 18 19 20 and um, I realized it was pretty boring and so I thought to myself you know I need to get a life otherwise I'm gonna end up in jail like the rest of my family and then um, I decided to try and go in the army and I passed the test to get in the army, but this year 
the recession hit. And so because I was such a young age, I'd only just turned 16, I would have gone into this Queen's regiment. And then because of this recession, she wasn't bringing anyone in. And so I had to wait 12 months. But by the time 12 months had come, my life was already gone. I was, you know, I was kind of homeless, sofa surfing, um, living all over the place, kind of, again, committing crime, selling drugs. And doing things just to live for the weekend, go out, party, sleep with people. Um, and that became my life, just survive every day. And then just get out on the weekend and just have some fun and some life. And, you know, I, I then got involved with some other people, ended up kind of in court and lots of different charges. But I ended up going to jail for quite a while. And then for, for like a, a Section 18 where someone got beat up. And on that sentence, um, kind of started thinking about my life really and I suppose that was the first time where I encountered the presence of God and um, we'd go to little chapel groups and sing songs you know like um you know father a place into your hands things I can't do and songs like that and then I used to sing it I was the altar boy at the Catholic church and um, you know in prison it's like cool to be a Catholic it's like um you have your little rosary and beads and stuff like that and so yeah there was Something about religion that always interested me all my life. Didn't know what it was, but I was always had time for religious people. I'd always listen to them. Um, I definitely believed there was a God all my life. I don't. I don't think I disbelieved there was something out there, outside of us. Um, I think as a young kid, I don't think I ever believed in evolution. Um, I just think I saw it. I watched a lot of nature programs and just thought, I don't think this is true. So, um, yeah. So going there. Kind of felt the presence of God a little bit, and I remember, I remember when my sentence was coming to an end, and I was getting out. I was involved with some pretty heavy people, going to get involved in some pretty serious crimes, and I remember kind of praying to a God I didn't know at that point, just saying, "Look, you know, I don't know where my life's going to end up. I know it's going to be in, in a very serious place, but just protect me. And if I end up in jail for the rest of my life." Then, then, you know, I'll kind of give my life to get that point and help me to save young people. And that was kind of the prayer of my heart. Or if I get to retire, when I've retired, then I'll give my life to you and I'll help you with young people and stop them choosing this life. And so, yeah, I got out of jail. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I had, you know, money, infamy, power, all those other things. But really, I felt dead inside. And, and I was full of fear, anxiety, and people began to lose their lives. Things began to happen. And I started coming to a point in my life that I realized I really didn't want to be about this lifestyle anymore. And so I, I decided to get out. And getting out of that life really cost me a lot, personally, emotionally, mentally. And, and so much so that I come to the point where I was like trying to just escape from that lifestyle, escape from that person who I was, and just start a new life. And... I needed money to do that. And then trying to get money one night, I pulled a knife on a guy and demanded his money. He refused to give it me. And so I, he fought me and I ended up stabbing him with the knife and then run off, kind of left him for dead. And then the next day I went in the police station and just said, look, I think I've killed somebody. And then I need one and myself in for murder. And, you know, sadly, the night before doing that, I wasn't sat there feeling sorry for him. I was feeling sorry for me. Like my life was 23 then, 24. What's been the point of it? It's like literally nothing but misery and, and chaos. What's the point? Felt so unfair. 
and, and so much injustice I felt towards myself that I was now going to be in prison for the rest of my life. And then thankfully the man was okay. I went to court, I got sent to prison again. And then, but what happened was I started having real problems in my dreams and my sleep. I started having dreams of like being shot and killed and stabbed every night and couldn't sleep. Had this real sense of dread and fear. And, and also what came with that was this sense that if there's a God, where do naughty people go? And where do people go like me? And I didn't know. And um, and so I was like, I had this fear, physical fear of life, physical fear of death. And then um, I remember one day encountering this Jamaican woman. She told me she was a born again Christian. She was 67. And, and as I sat down to speak to her, I just encountered this power in her. I don't know what it was. I just knew that what was in her was, was more powerful than what I was running from and what was frightening me and, and what was going on in me. And it, it gave me the hunger to discover what she had. And so obviously, you know, for those of you listening, most of Christians, I presume, or, or if you're not, then, then it's worth listening to anyway. But the end of that journey was, the start of that was this hunger that was created in me to find a God. The end of that journey was me encountering God in the prison cell. You know, in that journey, I had dreams. In these dreams, I was sat in rooms with circles of people all praying, singing songs to God. In this vision, this dream I had, I saw that there was loads of homes with little gatherings like that, which is super relevant to what we're doing today. And I had other things happen where, where I'd meet the only Christian officer in a certain part, and it was just like all these what I call God incidences. And I then came to the last prison I was in, and it was like, I think I came to the point where I'd met this Christian who was quite middle class and nice. And I'd said to him, look, I'm not being funny, but your God doesn't understand my life and can't understand me. I swore at him and told him he's wasting his time. Why is he coming into a prison like this when, when his God isn't for people like us? I was more angry that the guy couldn't answer my questions. And, and I was more angry about that because it was like, then I've got no hope. But like I was angry then. And then, and then I kind of put my Bible in the drawer, would still read it a little bit, but was just, yeah, felt, what's the point? It just gave me comfort reading it. That's what happened. And it gave me comfort praying, even though I didn't know God then. And then I met this guy, um, a friend of mine called, and I don't mind using his name because he won't be bothered, called Graham Seed. And then he came in the jail where I was, big six and a half foot dude. And then everyone's like shaking his hand. And it was like, this guy was like a made man. And uh, and I was like, man, this must be the biggest gangster of this town. It's got to be. And uh, so I was like, I was just w working him out, sat down quiet, was working him out. And anyway, then he just, he ends up giving his testimony, like what I'm doing now. And, and I just thought, oh, just a Christian, that's all right. Flipping heck. So he tells his story. And as he's telling his story, I realized two things. One of the things I realized was everybody in this room knows him. They're all from his manor, his neck of the woods. They all know him. And the other thing was, he sat, he sat there telling these people, like he weed himself when he was homeless, he pooed his pants, he was a drunkard, he was this. And I'm sat there like, wow. I wasn't bothered about what he was saying, but, but what attracted me to me more was the fact he was being so truthful. And then at the end, he talked about how he'd gone to this place, he'd done an alpha course, he'd asked God to come to his life, not, not by words, by feeling and how he felt love and peace and joy and hope and as he said those words I remember it was like bars coming out of his mouth riveting me to my seat 
And I realized I need hope, I need peace, I need joy, I need love. And then I left that room thinking, you know, if God can be for him, then maybe God can be for me too. And so he started this Why Jesus course, and I did the course. And, and again, at the end of that course, we came to a point where they essentially answered our questions, done what they were doing, and we had the chance to ask Jesus to be Lord of our life um, and to surrender our lives to him. And so the night before, that was the scariest night of my life. What if I go down there and he doesn't accept me? And he rejects me, but accepts all these other prisoners. Now I'm going to have to live for the rest of my life with who I am. You know, my plan was at this point, I was just going to go out and probably take heroin and die because I knew I couldn't cope with my life. And I knew I didn't know how to be normal and pay bills and work and all that. And so the fear there was if, if he's not real or if he accepts them and rejects me, I can't just get out and die because now I've got to stay along as, alive as long as I possibly can because when I die, there's someone actually there who's going to be waiting for me, like beat me up and that. So I'm going to have to fight. I've got to, have to stay alive, suffering in my own misery every day of my life, which was a horrific thought. The other thing was, what if it's just nothing to this? It's just nonsense. And then, you know, then again, I'd, I'd, I would have had no hope, I think. And the third option is, what, what if I go down there and this is, this is true? What if, like, there is a God and it's real? What if you can have a relationship with him, like this guy's talking about? And I went down, and, and that, for me, is what happened. I felt like I was on the edge of a cliff. This is how it felt for me. I felt like I stood on this big eye cliff. And when I said these words, and my words were simple, please help me to live. Help me to do life. Forgive me for what I've done to work you and other people. Help me to know what love is, what it feels like, what it looks like, and also help me to love people because I don't know how to do it. It was dead simple like that. And it felt like when I said those words, it was like I was stepping off a cliff. And and, and my step of faith then, which that, that was, was I just hope he captures me before he hit the floor. And thank God he did catch me. And that was the beginning of the rest of my life then at that point. That was... 21 years ago. Wow. Wow. Inspi inspiring story, Paul. And a reminder that God loves people, even people like you. Yeah. <laughs> and anyone else listening. So, so you felt you'd met Jesus. So fast forward um, to the point you actually were leading a church, weren't you, with your wife? And tell us yeah. a bit about what that, season of your life was like and then maybe some of the things that god was speaking to you then yeah well just backtrack a little bit in prison i'd already had little groups of people around the bible i was kind of sharing the, the gospel kind of making disciples just doing what i'd read doing what i'd seen in the prison i get out of jail and obviously i've got to learn but i've got a dad now who tells me to go to work get a job learn how to work you know, for some of you listening, this might be really important. You can often look at someone like Ben or someone living this life working for Jesus and think, oh, that's me. But you're essentially on the dole. And it's like, it's really important that you're called into this work. You have to learn a work ethic. It's so important to have one. And so God, that was the first thing God did for me, was that he taught me how to work. Get up, suffer, sometimes do stuff you don't want to do, provide for your family. Then... I got married, 
didn't have sex before marriage. Um, I had sex a lot before becoming a Christian, but I really felt of the Lord not to sleep with my wife before we got married. She felt the same way. She'd had her own past life. And so we saved ourselves as best we could. Like we didn't do anything like that. We didn't have sex before marriage. And so that was another thing where we died to ourselves, into our marriage. These are the things I feel like highlighting. Um, then, then doing that, learning how to be a dad, we had our daughter, learning how to essentially love somebody else. And this is the process that happened. And then through my work life, God took me through different jobs where I gained more trust more position and um, working with adults, addicts, ex-prisoners, different things. And then eventually working with young children whose mum and dads were getting separated and divorced and kind of working as a counsellor within marriage and all that. It's like, it was probably the biggest position of trust I could have achieved as a working person. And so this preparation, I always felt, I always felt in my heart, God eventually would have me working with him more like I'm doing now. Um, and I always used to feel like these jobs God had brought me into were just shaping my character um, into a more rounded person. And so after years of living that way, we'd attended the local church. We'd been, you know, attenders there, doing all that stuff. We got invited to kind of co-found the church, which we did. Spent time in that. Had brilliant worship, brilliant preachers, brilliant gospel messages. We saw about 180 decisions for Jesus in six months. We saw healings like all the time. We were traveling to see Reinhard Bonke. We were starting missions in different nations. It was like it was like this phenomenal crest of a wave ride. And then right at the peak of it, it was like all of a sudden, God started putting other people on my heart again. What about the lost people? And that worked for me, really. I got this real fear of dying and out of nowhere. I, I, I sat on my bed and imagined my, my soul sinking in this grave. And I was like trying to grab onto the bed sheet. It was weird. And then I sunk in and I was like frightened. And all of a sudden it was like messing with my head. It was like on my mind. I was like trying to think peace about it. And then I remember one night being in bed, thinking about my deathbed scene. I don't know why. And uh. I just said to God, because Stella was asleep, my wife next to me, I said to God, I, I can't do this. And, and I wasn't saying, I mean, you've got to die, haven't you? Like you've got no choice, but what I was saying with God is, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can die with dignity, with peace. I'm frightened. And I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, if you choose to die every time I ask you to die, now, then your death will be just one last step of obedience. That's all it is. But if you refuse to die in your life now, then when it comes to that deathbed encounter, you won't be used to dying for me. And then it will be difficult. So start dying now to your flesh and stuff, right? So I then looked at, listened to this teaching series by David Parson. Really helped me to see clearly my destiny, everything, how it was. Okay, I get that. But then I was left with that reality. I'm okay. I'm all right. But what about everybody else then? And that then birthed this real burden on my heart to reach people for Jesus so they could experience salvation and essentially be saved from judgment and hell. And so 
that then started bringing in this kind of uh, dissatisfaction with what I was seeing. And all of a sudden, I started being in these meetings. And as much as I love the people, I started noticing that none of them were doing anything. We were putting on this amazing service. We had great teaching, great preaching, great everything. But all that was happening was like, this is the picture I saw. All that was happening is that the people that were attending the church just got fatter and fatter and fatter spiritually. They just became obese spiritually, so puffed up with knowledge and teaching and equipping and training, but absolutely unwilling to do anything with it. And so I remember at one point I did this message on um, being ministers of reconciliation. And we had 50 leaders in the room. And it was our leaders, our second-tier leaders. And I preached this message about go and be ministers of reconciliation. That's a calling for all of us. And I simplified it as best as I could. I do this message for a lot of churches, to be honest, because you, it's where you've got to start. Step one, start looking at people when you walk down the street. Step two, say hello to people as you walk past them. Like that basic, that <laughs> basic. When you're in a restaurant or a shop, look at someone's name tag and see what they're called and like call them by their name. Like I didn't even get to pray for the sick. It was just basic things like that. And so laid it out. This is our leaders training them how to do the work of Jesus. Remember, that's what this is about. Two months later, I go back and I'm doing a message on setting the captives free, kind of delivering that stuff. And uh, at the end of that message, I just felt a check off the Lord to ask them. So I said, who remembers what I said? Put their hands up, yeah. And then I asked them, has anyone done anything about it? And all the rings went down. And I think at that point, I stood there and I felt, I felt really disheartened. And I just, I just felt so disheartened. And I was like, what the heck am I doing here? I'm preparing a message at that point. It could have been four or five days of me sweating over a message, making sure it's right theologically, making sure I'm getting it right, praying for the anointing, living my life certain ways so God can honor the words and all of that. It, it, it cost me, it cost my wife, it cost my family. And these people would do nothing with it. And then and then and then a guy died, froze to death on the street in Bristol, I think, or Birmingham. 12 o'clock at night and my next message that Sunday two days after this was, was like God said go and I think on that message I'd preached two messages previously Jesus came to seek and save the lost um, can't remember the other one and then God said go and at that message as I preached that message I knew God was telling us to go you know I cried as I delivered that message I was essentially begging the church to just look outwardly like this God, I mean, I remember saying in that meeting, you don't understand how blessed you are to even know what peace is. To even know what peace is, is, is like such a massive blessing. Some people don't know what peace even is. There's no peace in their life. We have peace to give to people. And like, we just sat here every week. You leave this building where you're thankful for God paying your MOT or whatever. But you're walking past people the moment you walk out in Morrison, Tesco's everywhere and doing nothing to share what you've got. And it was like, 
It was a tiny bit of rebuke, but it was more of a call in my own heart. Um, and so, yeah, it was then a definite call. And, and then we'd had this prophetic word about don't be frightened to fly off the branch like this eagle. And as I read this prophetic word in my bedroom one day, I felt God saying to me, this is the time for this word now. And when I went in the back garden, there was a massive eagle had escaped from a bird sanctuary down the way that was on our next door but one neighbour's roof. So it was like God confirming that's the time. So at that point, yeah, we prayed, we sought God. A lot of other things happened with it as well. God revealed the character of some people and different things. A lot of other things that happened at that time as well. Um, and then I realized at that point we can't follow these people anymore. But even that in itself is becoming a disciple. Mm. We had a guy from the underground church in China came and he spoke about what is a disciple. And and the, and Jesus wants disciple, but the church in the West is making converts. And he then did a proper teaching on what a disciple is. And I realized I wasn't one. And I realized I didn't have any. And so these were all things that came at the same point where we were, we were left at this position of, I think we need to leave mm. this position of leadership, which is what we decided to do. In our hearts, we were going to step up leadership and stay in the church. Um, but it didn't happen that way. So we, we, we took the decision, stepped up the leadership, and we essentially had to leave the church. So, and that's that. The ball rolling. So, so what I'm hearing is you wrestling with the question are you a disciple yourself? Yeah. Are you making disciples of other people? And this whole area of being sent, um, you know, like we would think of people who are missionaries, but this this sense of we're all sent to make disciples. So, so did God send you off to some unreached tribe in the middle of the jungle in in India somewhere, or or what happened next? No, basically, He sent me. Um, back to our own front room. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he sent us. Um, he sent us to our own people. He sent us to the people who live around us. Hundred and thirty-eight thousand people live in this town, and that's the call that God put on our heart was was to make Him known in this town. And yeah. um, there's hundred and thirty-eight thousand people here. There's hundred and thirty-one thousand people allegedly far from God, but. And what I do know is statistically, in the whole of Teesside, 97.3% of the population don't go to church. Yeah. I don't know how many have a relationship with God. There's probably way more than that, but they don't go to church. So that means there's no fellowship, no direction and other stuff. And the amount the amount of places I walk and go out, there isn't many witnesses, or much of a witness. Um, so that that's really it. It's to go to our own people first. And and that's what the call we felt is to start churches multiplying, disciples multiplying in, in the northeast, in Middlesbrough, um, and and the lost that are around us um in this nation. So so tell us, because you're probably like me, I hear a lot of people talking about this and using words like mission and having these great big plans. So tell us what's actually happening. Is it working? So right, yeah, it's working. Yeah, I think the, the, the thing was the other year, my wife, my wife went out and she did what we call a discovery Bible study, 
all of Discovery Bible study is really is a simple thing. It teaches people to be prayerful, love their neighbor, be obedient to what Jesus is asking them to do. It's essentially what a disciple is. And then to learn to share with other people and to go and make disciples themselves. And so she did the first one of them. And when she came back, she said, this works. And so what we've found ever since that is it works. And we found that really, instead of me preaching at everybody, telling everyone what they should see in the Bible, all of that stuff, all of that weight and burden being on myself, what we've found is if we just trust the word enough to speak for itself, it does. And each individual person can hear God for themselves out of the story, out of the scripture, and take something from that, what they feel God may want them to be, putting a practice into their life or maybe where God introduces himself into their life. So whether they're a new believer, whether they're just seeking God or don't even want to know God, but they're interested in him, whether they've been saved for years, this has been a real phenomenal tool to just equalize everybody and bring us all back to the place of just simply following Jesus and obeying him. And 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 that that really has been a phenomenal tool, coupled with just loving people. And you know, love always costs. I say this to everybody, love always costs. It never doesn't cost. It costs to open your door. It costs to buy someone a coffee. It costs to go and pray for someone. It costs every single time. And because often loving someone else means you have to die for your own self to do it. So one of the greatest things is loving people and loving God, obeying him, love God. And then and then from that, seeing that develop and yeah, it works. We just had a meeting uh, two weeks ago, our first little tribe time, we called it, a little gathering of people who we've basically connected with over the last 12, 13 months, begun life with. We've seen six baptisms in that time. Um, there's another guy just decided to get baptised last week. But, you know, it's not just the they're baptised, and that's weeks and weeks of looking at Scripture, being together in the Bible, doing life. Um and, and there was about 50 people in the room, lots of kids from zero all the way up to 80 years of age, such a healthy gathering of different people. In that room was, was some friends of ours we've developed a friendship with. They, they're a gay married couple with a family, with adopted children. You know, there was spiritual people in there, the Reiki practitioners in there, mediums in there, people of different, again, sexual genders, um, managerial statuses, and people who are just attracted to what we're doing, attracted to our love for people. And, and again, the people we've discipled go in building relationships with other people. There was, there, was, there was a real beautiful picture of this kind of, it wasn't just everyone connected to me and my wife, it was people connected to people we were connected to. That was awesome. And a couple of Christians that came were like blown away by it, loved it. The guests that came, they loved it. Um, you know, even my friend's mum, and she told him on the night she was crying, just said it was so beautiful. And again, the venue wasn't great. There wasn't flashing lights or anything. The, the words didn't work on the screen. You could hardly <laughs> hear the guy singing. And it was the fellowship. There was so much power in it. And 
yeah, and that's developed over probably the last 12 months, really. It's been phenomenal. It's been, been awesome. Tell, it tell, us how you, tell us how you felt God leading you to a certain area that was so rough it was on TV, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. It was on a Panorama program. You can still watch it now on YouTube. It's called Afraid in My Own Home Panorama. And about 80% of that program felt focused on this little estate called Hamilton. And um, we'd, we'd really, me and my wife, we'd come to a point where I think God had prepared us. I think he'd destroyed the idols in our own life, the sin in our own life, the hurt we'd actually gone through. He'd healed us of that. He prepared us really as workers. But at the end of that process, we were kind of like, we can't do this. We're not good enough for this work, really, or it doesn't work. Like, we were just like, what are we doing? We've been all over trying all different things. And then we said, like, we're just going to give it 12 months. COVID had ended. We're going to give this 12 months, and we're going to commit to it. 12 months, we're going to do it properly together as one. Pray. Da, da, da. And so we sat, got a thing off the Lord, unless the Lord builds the house, all do labor, labor in vain. So we just rested on that. It's going to be God doing it, not our strength, not our action, not this, this, and this. Just God. And then we just gathered in our front room again, me, my wife, our friend, and uh, a friend of our family, and our couple of kids. And we just began doing Discovery Bible study together. And then after prayer one day, we just prayed. And before we started the Discovery Bible study, and I was just, we just said, God, we're going to be quiet for five minutes. Could you just speak to us? And in that five minutes, I felt God just lay on my heart, this place, Hamilton. And so off the back of that, I went to this place. I'd run the police and asked them where the worst parts of that place were. Um, and again, if you watch the documentary, you'll see. But really, there was there was cars getting bricked as they went down the road. There was there was houses where you'd see a house, a burnt out house, another house, sheds being set on fire. Like the police weren't there. The the local PTSO officer who'd been there for years, he'd left his job because he was calling for backup and no police come to back him up. The fire brigade were getting bricked when they came in. The people were basically abandoned by everyone, by their housing providers. Like, honestly, they were so abandoned by everyone. My prayer was, God, please, would you make this place visible to the powers that be? And so I went there. I just went to those really bad places, began to pray, just pray. I was on my own, just pray, uh, you know, even feeling frightened, to be honest, and scared I was and vulnerable. Just pray. And then off the back of that prayer, began to beat people. Then people were like thankful to me for being there and knowing that I was there as a man of God, minister of God. They were thankful that someone was there, someone cared, that brought hope to people, which was amazing. I was expecting to see big, massive church revival, but actually what happened was the community revived in that time. The people, the shopkeepers, the shop owners, the that they got faith, the hope, they galvanized, started groups. You know, in the end, one of them, um, again, she's a good friend of mine now, she 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 wrote a letter to the mayor of Middlesbrough and invited him to sit down to talk about the issues. And then he agreed to meet her. And so she then messaged me and said, will you come and sit with me because I don't feel confident, which is like a massive privilege, to be honest. And so I went and sat with her just to be with her to give her comfort and strength and prayed for her before she went. And out the back of that, the mayor of Middlesbrough then ended up walking around that estate with me three or four times. And it's funny because we've been praying for God to send us a fellow worker to walk around the estate with me. And, uh, and he sent the mayor. 
So, <laughs> the mayor of Middlesbrough. <laughs> yeah, and the mayor, and, and in that in that journey, that few hours that we spent together, I ended up giving him a Bible. And in that Bible, I wrote Psalm 139. I wrote the Roman road journey. And I finished with Matthew, uh, uh, John 3. And, and, and basically about you have to be born again. I just wrote on that, look, this is a message from my family to your family with love. Uh, we love you. We're praying for you. I just want you to know this is a journey. This is a road. And if you follow this road, it will lead you to Jesus. And it will lead you ultimately to the decision. So be blessed. And I gave him that Bible and never heard anything of it. And then a few months later at Easter, I sent him a story of the prodigal son. Again, didn't hear anything from it. But last week on Sunday, someone sent me a post. They were trying to have a dig at him, really, saying he's using your name and all that. And then uh, but I messaged back and said, oh, no, it's true. And he put on his post, you know, I'm thankful to this local vicar and for helping me in my faith and other stuff. But also, there's a few good Christians who've helped me along the time. But, I, you know, and I really want to thank, and then he mentioned my name and said, you know, it's not for me, it's not whatever, but it was just, it was quite, it was like a little hug from God, really. I just want to thank Paul for giving me the Bible and getting me back into, like, liking my Bible again and enjoying my Bible again. So, yeah, that was awesome. It was and he, awesome. he wants to come along, doesn't he, to one of your gatherings? Yeah. For the next one, so we're going to have them every quarter um, so that we can keep getting out, growing and multiplying, but then give people a sense of family. Um, and that's one of the things I learned from you when I come down to Somerset was these things we're building, whatever you want to call it, if it isn't a family first and foremost, then it, it's not anything. It's got to be a family. It's like you've got to be loving everybody. You've got to kind of see, right, overriding your desire to see multiplication and other stuff. Sometimes you've got to stop and just ask yourself, what does this person actually need right now? Because sometimes people don't need kind of more stuff. They need you to just sit down and just chat with them, listen to them, love them, encourage them. And, and so that's hopefully what I think God's done, is he's built a little family of us, and that's, that family's growing a little bit. And I think wherever people have encountered us now, then 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 I I believe that they felt love, and and that's another thing that's been important to me is that the witness they've encountered has been a positive witness. We're spiritual straight away. We don't we we always on about God, but we're not running things down people's throat. We're just spiritual people. We're offering prayer. We're ministering to me. We're bringing stories out of the Bible into situations. And in doing that, we're just glorifying God among the people more. And so people then can say, oh, there is a God. These people represent God. These people are all right. Therefore, God's all right. Because, again, you don't know what 